0: Let us then return to Amos chapter 4. We're working our way through this book. We've reached chapter 4. The last two Wednesdays, we looked at chapter 3 and we draw four points from it. We believe in chapter 3, there were four calls. The Lord called Israel. The Lord then called Amos. The Lord called Witnesses so that witnesses might vindicate what the Lord was about to do, and the Lord then called for judgment. And we looked at the last two of these calls last week, and the title was, The Lord Fighting His People, a dreadful thought for us, but that's the way it was. Well, tonight we want to look at chapter four. We're going to split it into three, time permitting, The title I'd like to give tonight to our sermon is Getting Specific, Getting Specific. The Lord here in this chapter, through the prophet Amos, he highlights three sins to be found in his covenant people, the people of Israel. And here the the prophet gets close and personal. He goes right into the heart of the matter. He's not ashamed or afraid to confront the people directly with their sin. The prophet Amos begins to highlight the particular sins of the people of Israel at that day and what measures the Lord has taken them to bring them to repentance. This really basically sums up This chapter, Amos highlighting the sins and then also painstakingly sets out the measures that God has taken with his covenant people in Israel to bring them to repentance. Well, this chapter here, we have three sins, three sins that are highlighted, and these are the three headings that I wish to bring to your attention tonight the first sin is luxury luxury you might not think that's a sin but it certainly was in the days that Amos was prophesying to the people of Israel and we find this basically in these first three verses, verses 1 to 3 in chapter 4 luxury comes from a latin word that means excessive excessive and it originally referred to plants that grow abundantly and that's where we get our english word luxurious but then it came to refer to people who have an abundance of money time and comfort money time and comfort and we find all of these things in these three verses here that Amos is highlighting. Now, it's not a sin to be rich and to have the comforts of life. It most certainly is not a sin to be rich and to enjoy the blessings that God has given to people, to his own people and to unbelievers. God is good, God does give temporal blessings and gifts to many people, and it's not wrong to be rich. And you will know yourselves in, in the Bible, people like Abraham, he was exceedingly rich. Job was rich before he was struck, but afterwards he was also rich. David was rich, Solomon was rich. All of these men, and there would be others. You know them as well as I do. There were many, many people in the Bible who were rich, but. Their riches did not dominate their lives. As someone says, luxury doesn't mean owning abundant possessions so much as allowing possessions to own us. And there is a difference. And this is what was happening here. These people, the Lord in some sense had blessed them with temporal blessings, and they were loving it, and they were living in luxury, and they were living in luxury while they were oppressing others. So the rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poorer, and the rich were delighting in it. They were delighting in their luxury, and basically their lifestyle was, well, we couldn't care less about the poor at all. Couldn't care less. We're rich, we've got what we want, We want more of it. We want more of this life of luxury, more of this money, more of abundant possessions, more comfort, more leisure, more time to do as we please. This is what we want. And we don't care how we're going to get it. Now it's very interesting here who he actually uh, points the finger at, if you like. Who does he actually get up close and personal with, who is he getting specific with? Well, we have it here in our, in our first chapter, in our first verse of chapter four. Hear this word, ye kine of Bashan. Kine is another word for cows of Bashan. Bashan was an extremely fertile part of Israel and the animals there were extremely well fed. They were prime beef animals. And here's what he says, ye kind, ye cows of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, that's in Israel, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. Now the key is when it says, which say to their masters, these people, The kine or the cows of Bashem are speaking to their masters. That word masters could easily be translated lords. Who are they speaking to? They're speaking to their husbands. You know your Bibles. You know that Sarah called Abraham Lord. In Genesis, we've noticed it some time ago. We also noticed that in first Peter, Peter remarks that Sarah called Abraham Lord. She was submissive to Abraham. Under the marriage covenant, she recognized the headship of Abraham and she called him Lord. Now these ladies here, and it's ladies it's referring to, these ladies are calling their husbands, masters, lords, and they're demanding, bring and let us drink. Go and get more money. Go and do whatever you need to do to get what I want. It's really a play. They are saying, they're speaking to their masters, but they are not in in a real sense, being submissive to their masters, to their husbands. And he calls them ye kind of Bashan. Now, if a minister was to address his lady folk in the congregation, ye kine or cows of Bashan, there would be an uproar. Because in our modern language, in our modern society, to call a lady a cow is to talk about her being promiscuous or to be somewhat unacceptable or undesirable. This is not the case here. He is not talking about them being overweight and being promiscuous. What he is talking about here is they are being prepared, they are fattening themselves for judgment by their behavior. That's what he's talking about. When the cows, the cattle would be on the plains of Bashan, where they would have the fine, finest of uh, grass to feed on, they would be prime beef. And what happens when the farmer looks at his, uh, at his cattle? He sees them getting fatter. He sees them, well, it's time then to go to the slaughter. He is preparing them for the slaughter. He'll get a lot of money for them and people will be delighted to buy them and then to eat their meat well this is what he's saying about these ladies because of their behavior ye kind of patient by your behavior you are just simply fattening yourselves for the judgment of god to fall upon you now it's important to realize here they the ladies the wives They were in the background. They were saying to their masters, to their lords, to their husbands, bring and let us drink. In other words, go and get what I want. I've got plenty of spare time. Go and get me some drink. Go and get me some food. Doesn't matter how you get it. Doesn't matter what happens. Just go and get it. And this is where the oppression was coming. The ladies were driving it and the men were going out and getting what they required. The men were on the front line. The husbands were on the front line, but it was the women folk that were behind them. In other words, they were all implicated. They were all implicated. The men may be doing the dirty deed, The men may be the ones who would oppress the poor. The men may be the ones who would deprive the the innocent and the poor of judgment in the courts, for instance, but it was all driven by the ladies back at home. None would be excused, none whatsoever. They would all face the terrible judgment Of God for their luxury for the fact that they did not care about the poor around them and they didn't care how they got what they wanted as long as they had luxury as long as they had pleasure as long as they had wine as long as they had food as long as they had what this world could give them they didn't care it reminds us a wee bit does it not of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he fared sumptuously day after day. Lazarus was at his gate. He didn't care about Lazarus whatsoever. No thought. He was eating, he was drinking, he was living in luxury. He was pleasing himself. He was doing no harm, but he was doing no good to the poor person that was at his door. And you know what happened. He ended up lost, perishing, in that terrible place called hell, where Lazarus, well, he was in paradise when he died. Friends, let us not get taken up with the things of this world and pursuing the things of this world Because it has an effect. It has an effect upon them. But it also has an effect upon their posterity. Look at verse 2, for instance. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. He's sworn by his holiness. He hates this. And he's sworn by his holiness because he couldn't swear by anyone greater than himself. And by his, his holiness, he's going to do something about it. The day shall come upon you that he shall take you away with hooks. That's what the Assyrians were going to do. That's what they did. They went and they put hooks in people's noses and pulled them out. Pulled them out of their land and brought them into captivity. Do you notice what goes on afterwards? And your posterity with fish hooks. It wasn't just them. It was their family also because of their behavior, which was so offensive to the living God, their posterity, who had been brought up in this luxury also. They were going to be treated like fish and brought into captivity also. It's a warning. The Lord of God is living and active and sharper than than any two-edged sword. It applies today, friends by some standard, we may not be regarded as living in luxury. But those in the third world would look upon every single one of us, no matter how well off we are. They would see us as living in luxury even those that we would regard in our own midst who are not living in luxury, compared with those in the third world, all of us are living in luxury. Let us make sure that these things don't dominate us and drive us. Yes, if God has blessed us, then we bless God for them. Let us use them properly. The Bible talks about the rich, about using what they have for the advancement of others. Paul tells that Timothy, let the rich be quick to do good works. This is what this is talking about here. People who just lived in luxury, couldn't care about anyone else, simply to please themselves. That kind of behavior. Is offensive to God. Well, the second sin he highlights, verses four to five, can be simply summed up one word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Here, Amos is being ironic. He's basically telling them to go on with their religion, go on with their services, go on with all this they say they're doing in the name of the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Go to these places, go to these holy places, go to these notable places. What was notable about Bethel? Bethel was a special place for Abraham and Jacob. They're associated with Bethel. At one time, the Ark of the Covenant was there. It was the site of the king's chapel at this particular time. You know, when the king had a chapel, it was there at Gilgal. And the people loved to go to that place. And Amos says, go to it. Undertake all your religion. Go there. Enjoy it. But you know what? God finds it offensive. And the same could be said for Gilgal. This is where Joshua and the people camped when they entered into the Promised Land. It was a notable place. And in these two places, Bethel and Gilgal, they set up shrines. They set up golden calves, shrines, where they gathered together and they, they would say they were worshiping the Lord but in actual fact, they were worshiping false gods. They were offering false worship, which was not acceptable to the living God. This is what he says, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings for this liketh you. This is what you like. This is this is world worship. This is you pleasing yourself, thinking that you can worship God like this. It's not on. God will not have it. He doesn't want it. And you know, at these places, we're told here, verse 4, and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. I'm not going to elaborate there, but the simple point there is they were giving more to God than he required. And they thought, well, this is it. God is going to be pleased with this. We are giving him more sacrifices than he actually wants. God surely must find this acceptable. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. They were to do that. It was with unleavened bread they were to do these things. And proclaim and publish free offerings. Make known what you've done. Look, look at me. This is what I've done. Look how much I've given. This is how much I've given. They proclaimed it to everyone in order that they might have some kind of credit among the people. But God found it offensive. It was hypocrisy. They love to make a display of their religiosity or churchianity, we might say. Giving more than the law required. It pleased them, but not the Lord. A very sobering time, friends. Hypocrisy. What does God say about your worship? What does God say about your service? Well, it has to be the way He would have you to worship Him. You have to serve Him the way he would have you to serve him. You're to serve him in spirit and in truth. This is what he requires. And he found hypocrisy amongst these worshippers who loved to go and say they worship God. They were found at the places of worship. It's not that they stayed in bed. It's not that they never entered into the house of God. No. They were diligent as far as these things were concerned. But God found their worship, their service, their givings, their offerings full of hypocrisy. What about ourselves? You have to look to your heart. I have to look to my heart. Are we doing what we do to be seen of men? If that's the case, we will have a reward. God looks to the heart. He sees the heart. It's humbling. Well, thirdly, briefly, the other sin... That takes up the rest of the chapter is from verses 6 to 13 and it can be summed up in one word stubbornness stubbornness in these verses he he outlines the things that god has done god has brought terrible things upon them famine drought destruction of crops sicknesses defeat in war catastrophe that we don't know exactly what it was, but there was a catastrophe in verse 11. It's not highlighted. I have overthrown some of you. We don't know what that was, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. God did something terrible, a catastrophe, but he rescued some. What it was, we don't know. And then he's pointing to that time, when an ultimate judgment will come, in verses 12 to the end. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. I don't know if you noticed, as we were reading through the chapter, five times, five times these words are repeated, yet, Have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Verse six, verse eight, verse nine, verse 10, verse 11 ends with these words. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. He sent famine, they didn't return unto the Lord. He sent drought, they took no notice. They did not return unto the Lord. The crops were destroyed. What does it say in verse nine? I have smitten you with blasting and milled you." They took no notice. Sicknesses, they took no notice. Defeat in war. They were promised if if they would be faithful to the Lord, they would defeat their enemies. The enemies were defeating them. They took no notice. And the catastrophe that we don't know about, they took no notice. Even when God acted in grace during that catastrophe, the end result was they remained stubborn in their sins. They would not repent. They would not take the hint. They would not realize that God is speaking directly to them by these events. Now, friends, this might startle some of you. It certainly startles many modern Christians today. But all of these things, every single one of them, famine, drought, destruction of crops, sicknesses, defeat in war and the catastrophe, they all have the stamp of God on them. God, if you like, and I'm being reverent here, God, if you like, is holding his hand up and saying, I did it, I did it. And this is the way that we must look upon the things that happen to us as individuals, as, as a congregation or as a denomination, or indeed in the affairs of this world, When we see things like this happening in our day and generation, God is saying to you and to me, I'm doing this. This has my stamp of approval and authority upon it. This is God acting, and he's acting with a purpose, because he wants people to return unto him. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now, you can look at your own life. We could step back and maybe look at the nation. What things have happened in the nation? Well, we could go back to COVID. We could go back to the financial crisis. We could go back to diseases that came to our animals. What is it? Foot and mouth? I can remember that. I'm sure you can remember that. When thousands and thousands of animals had to be slaughtered, you could remember the AIDS pandemic. You could remember other things. This is the hand of God. This is God moving. Now, this might upset some people. Oh, God can never do this. God would not do this. God does it. He does it. Let me read just one or two verses from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. Here Paul is outlining the case to the Gentiles about God. And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When we see these things happening in our nation, in the world, it is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men the war in israel the war in the ukraine the terrible things that happen in this world god is doing it oh let's be clear he's not the author of sin no no we don't say that for one minute but he's behind it, he has a plan, he has a purpose. And it leaves us all without excuse, as it left them without excuse, because they were all designed to cause them to repent. We don't know exactly what God is doing in Israel, but friends, We cannot be contradicted when we say, when things that are happening in Israel, it is that Israel would repent, and it is that the Palestinians would repent, and it is that the Arab nations would repent, and it is in order that Britain and America and whatever else in this world, that they too would repent, that they would look at these things and that they would see the wrath of God. The Ukraine. Does the minister know what's going on there? No. Who's ultimately, humanly speaking, who's to blame? I cannot say. I don't have the knowledge. But God by that war, wicked people started it, yes. No one's denying that. But ultimately, God is calling the Ukrainians and the Russians and all to repentance. That's what He's doing, and this is what happened here to His people. Remember, they were they were the modern-day churchgoers of our day. They were not; I, they were not unbelievers. They were not heathen. They were his covenant people and they were up to their necks in stubbornness. Therefore, he says, thus will I do unto thee. He doesn't specify what he's going to do unto them. And because I will do this, he doesn't specify unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Now, this is a call or an advance notice of judgment. But, and I want to close here, but it's also a message of grace. It's a message of grace. Why? Prepare to meet thy God. Not prepare to meet God. Prepare to meet thy God. There is, there is some grace here in this proclamation. O oh, Israel, O oh, Israel, my covenant people, oh terrible things are going to happen, but still, even at this late hour, even as the clock is about to expire on the day of grace, even now, come, listen, prepare to meet thy God, not a strange God, not a foreign God, but the God who has been merciful and gracious to the people of Israel ever since he took them out of Egypt and even before that, that same great God who throughout the history of Israel has proved himself to be a faithful God and a gracious God and who will forgive the penitent. They were to realize this, it's thy God. It's the one that you in some sense do know But you're not serving. You're you're involved in your luxuries. You're involved in hypocrisy. You're up to your neck in your stubbornness. But God says, prepare to meet Thy God, O Israel. There's hope. And in order that they might know the God with whom they are dealing with, he says, He that formeth the mountains, the great creator. Oh, when you see the mountains, friends, it should remind you of great God, his almighty power. When you look at them, do they not fill you with awesomeness and wonder who created the wind? We can feel the wind, the wind can blow us over, but he's the one who has created the wind. What does he say? And declareth unto man, what is his thought? He goes right into your heart. He can declare what you're thinking tonight. He can declare what you're saying in your heart tonight. I can't. No one else can, but God can. That maketh the morning darkness. Well, we can forecast the weather. That's true, and very often we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong, but. They're getting better and better. They can forecast the weather, but who can turn the morning into darkness? None, none but God. And treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. That's the one you've got to deal with. Not with a minister, not with a session, but with almighty God. But he says, prepare to meet thy God, this great and glorious God. Well, he, this great and glorious God, he got specific. He highlighted their sins. Why did he do it? Why? That they would return unto him. Amen.